Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're all well during this pandemic, and please wear a mask when you're around people outside your normal bubble. All right, in this episode of America Adapts, I'm hosting Dr. Maxine Burkett, a professor of law at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We have an amazing conversation digging into her work on climate justice and climate reparations. Yes, nothing controversial here. It's a fascinating discussion, and Dr. Burkett makes a compelling case that reparations are a way forward to helping frontline communities adapt to climate change. You're going to enjoy this conversation. Okay, upcoming episodes. I finally recorded my conversation with former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold, and it was a doozy. We talk about some of his recent advocacy for biodiversity protection, but we also talk a bit about the state of U.S. politics. Not my typical focus area, but listen, this was Senator Feingold. Delightful man, and he's doing some amazing work now on a variety of issues. Also coming up is my second episode in a three-part series with the Trustees, a conservation group in Massachusetts. The second episode, we visit Crane Beach, just north of Boston, and how they are adapting to climate change. Also, Dr. Renee Lertzman is coming on, and we're going to discuss climate grief and eco-anxiety. I've avoided this topic for a while, but finally was able to connect with Dr. Lertzman, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Some great stuff coming your way. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Maxine Burkett at the University of Hawaii. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Maxine Burkett, a professor of law at the University of Hawaii at Manoa at the William S. Richardson School of Law and a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Welcome to the podcast, Maxine. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. We've been trying to set this up forever, so I'm very excited we're actually having this conversation. <laughs> and like, I think we were on the cusp of doing this, and then something really big happened, a pandemic. And, I, and I'm checking in with people. What's going on with you teaching, your work? How's the, the COVID-19 situation affecting you? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think like everyone, it's been quite a roller coaster. We in Honolulu have had relatively low numbers until very recently. You know, I, most of my friends and colleagues aren't particularly sympathetic, you know, when we are able to sort of visit, you know, our quarantine does involve sort of getting away to the beach and those sorts of details. But obviously, we are surrounded by 2000 miles of open ocean and have a lot of dependencies, including our economy and tourism. So it's been a bit of a ride to to see what it would look like for there to be, you know, a sound transition as we grapple with all of the elements of COVID. You know, obviously, it's it, it, the disease itself, but also the ramifications for our political economy. So I'm fine. Our family is doing as well as can be expected. My husband's the chief resilience officer for the city and county of Honolulu, so he's been incredibly busy both with his existing portfolio and having COVID part of his work now as well. But we're doing okay. And as climate folks, we (laughs) tend to prepare for all kinds of disasters. (laughs) So we probably find ourselves in a better situated than than the average. My goodness, you're you're like the adaptation power couple. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. It doesn't make for very sexy pillow talk, if you know, right? Like a lot of our work takes uh, it, it runs right through the day, right uh, into the night. Uh, and our children are probably one of the best versed in uh, issues of ad- adaptation and sea level rise and all of the all of the ins and outs of, of climate and equity. So, yeah, it's an unusual family. Well, I, I hopefully they won't rebel from what you guys are doing. Listen, 
getting ready for this episode was actually quite a challenge. You guys sent me over a bunch of material and I've been reading and it's just fascinating work. And I'm like, all right, what are we going to talk about in this episode? But, you know, first, I just kind of want to get some background, too. So you're at the University of Hawaii, but you're a co-founder of the Institute for Climate and Peace. And what's that? Yeah, I'm a law professor. That is my day job. I do have a sort of a, a side hustle, if you will, which is that I, I founded with a, a dear friend and colleague, the Institute for Climate and Peace. And Maya Satoro, who, who is the co-founder, co is, is a peace advocate, uh, an educator. And we just noted that these two worlds were, have been siloed like so many things with respect to climate and our desire to both marry the two worlds uh, in a meaningful way and to have actionable work, right? So my research in the law is deep and I've been doing this for quite some time, but what does it mean if it doesn't have uh, sort of an actionable element to it in terms of its real world impact, especially given the climate uh, scenarios that we're, we're seeing play out right in front of our eyes. So we were both meeting a need to have the work be out in the community and to serve the community, as well as understanding that both fields benefit from the perspective of the other, both in framing the problems that we're uh, dealing with, those challenges, as well as coming up with solutions that are actually just and enduring. You, you mentioned this is your side hustle, but is this <laughs> a, a relationship? I mean, you're working with students at the university, but is the institute something where there's, you know, you're trying to bring both of those together? Absolutely. I mean, what we're trying to do essentially is to ensure sort of climate resilient peace and, and peaceful futures as we adapt to climate change. And we're, our focus is on communities that are uh, on the front lines. Our, at this point, our geographic focus is the Pacific Asia region and we're very much rooted in Hawaii and the, the values and ethics and sort of approach to work that is unique to the islands. But what makes this sort of a, and a different way of doing the work is that we take information, we take difficult conversations and efforts to collaborate, and we use that to come up with sound transformative policy, right? So that there is sort of a full circle approach to addressing some of the thornier problems. And the reason this is uh, one, ex one good example I, I, I should offer is that my research has been in climate-induced migration, at least a good portion of it. And we see that the, you know, it's, it's typically referred to as climate refugees or climate, the climate refugee crisis. And we see that the marriage of the two concerns about migration and climate tend to take on a security lens. They can devolve into conversations about borders, about xenophobia and exclusion. And what would it mean to actually think about the conditions that sustain human rights, that can sustain sustain peace and actually have that be the opportunity to approach the issues of migration and human mobility in the face of climate change with a spirit of welcome rather than exclusion. So it's really grounded in that understanding of, of understanding how, how we frame the challenge and then having an appropriate solution for the challenges as framed. As you follow these things, and I think at the Woodrow Wilson, it probably helps you with the kind of connections you make there. But with climate change and climate migration, there's going to be so much opportunity for conflict and it's already happening. And so this approach from, you know, peace, obviously, is something we want to support. But do you feel the conflict side of it could begin to kind of dominate? We take a national security approach to it. How, do, how does that factor in? No, that's that's right. And that's exactly what I was sensing from the discourse. Right. So climate and conflict does relate in some ways to to the migration of people and and the ability to move in and of itself but what we're finding is that 
to the extent that people were talking about peace and climate, it wasn't a climate security frame. And the security part of it was really sort of um, trending towards national security and what it means to, you know, uh, have people at your at your borders. Do we firm up those borders? Do we weaponize those borders? Or do we understand that we are sort of all facing the challenges that climate change, the compounding challenges that climate change present with, you know, major storms, long term drought, heat waves, et cetera, that are literally making it difficult for livelihoods to persist in parts of the world. And so when we think about that as conflict, a conflict avoidance or conflict resolution, we're eliminating a part of this that's about conflict transformation. And that's the that's the key element of it. I, without getting too much into the weeds here, a lot of our understandings of what peace is, is a negative peace, right? The absence of conflict or, you know, sort of whether that's at the regional or interpersonal level or certainly at the state to nation state to nation state level. When we're talking about peace and peace building, we're talking about positive peace, right? What are the conditions and the institutions that allow for sustained peace? Uh, a lot of that's equitable distribution of resources, free flow of information, strong relationships with your neighbors. How do you cultivate those kinds of conditions so that peace is avoided and when conflict does occur, it is transformed versus just resolved? And oftentimes that resolution doesn't get to some of the core problems and and how we got to that um, moment of conflict in the first place. So we're looking at it quite differently. We're looking at this as climate and positive peace building versus climate security, which I think is where most of the work that deals with conflict and the uh, influence of climate change on conflict really uh, situates itself. Well, I'm sure there's learnings on both sides. And, and I don't know if you crossed paths with Judge Alice Hill. Uh, she was in the National Security Council, and she came on and we talked yeah. about Syria and where climate played a role in that. And just it seems to me, even as you look at those examples, it's been talked about a lot as like, here's the migration of people, how's it's impacting you know, that conflict there. And what you're doing is almost you could reverse engineer these conflict situations because like, let's how do we do this differently? I don't know if that's how you do it, but it's just the learnings that could happen from these conflict areas. That's right. That's and that's uh, you're, you're capturing essentially what, what we're trying to do. I mean, if you think about certainly, you know, there's the, the example of, of Syria and other quote unquote hotspots. A lot of times we think about peace and conflict and its relationship to climate change as one of, you know, what does the climate forecasting tell us about potential hotspots? And I and that seems to be the sort of the, the value add. Right. It, it seems to sort of flow from the climate expert to maybe the peace builder. But I also think, frankly, as someone who comes more from the climate world, that the value add is really in, in the direction of climate change, benefiting from understanding those elements of positive peace building and seeing how we got to the point where there's differentials in adaptive capacity, when there is a, you know, differentials in exposure to climate and sort of ancillary effects. Um, knowing how we got to where we are and again, crafting more just solutions is a big part of the positive peace building work and will actually help us come up with better solutions when we're thinking about adaptation uh, to the, the varying and uh, worsening impacts of climate change. All right. So what do you do at the Woodrow Wilson International Center? You're a global fellow there. What does that mean? Yeah. So the Wilson Center, I was initially a public policy fellow at the time working on both islands and island resiliency in the face of climate change and other threats, but also working on migration and the issues of, again, quote unquote, climate refugees. And that then, uh, you know, I, I live in Honolulu and the Wilson Center is in D.C., but uh, I was then appointed as a global fellow with the Environmental Change and Security Program, which is where I did that initial work as a public policy fellow and have sort of maintained a strong relationship with the center in order to continue understanding what the relationship is between these concerns around 
conflict, migration, and equity uh, can look like. The Institute for Climate and Peace happens some years after becoming a global fellow, but the, the, the possibilities for, for partnership and collaboration, the synergies are completely there, and, and we've been cultivating that with the team at, in, at ECSP within the Wilson Center. Here's a question from Jesse Keenan. I, I asked him if he had a few because I know you're, you're friends and colleagues with Jesse. And he and I didn't realize uh, there was such a big difference. But he said I should ask you, you know, you look at climate justice. It's an area you're working on. But then you look at environmental justice. And he was saying that what are the differences between the two? And you have a, you will have a good answer for that. Yeah. OK. So I've gotten that question a couple of times. And the way I understand it. I mean, the way I approach it is one of sort of the, it's understanding the movement, right? The movements that are the base there. The environmental justice movement, it was a product of the civil rights movement and was about really highlighting the disproportionate burden, often toxic burden of communities of color, indigenous communities, and specifically black communities in the United States. And over time, as the climate crisis both exacerbated those toxic burdens, and it's presented itself as a, as a unique <laughs> challenge, the questions around how we address the interface between climate impacts and its and the disproportionate impact of, uh, on communities of color, indigenous communities, black communities, became what we understand in the U.S. to be climate justice. So if you're looking you know, back to this, the 70s and some of the earliest movements in environmental justice, those were about our, oftentimes our relationship with fossil fuels and was making clear at that time that the from extraction to combustion, fossil fuels have been an enemy of public health and well-being, especially, again, for communities of color, indigenous and black communities. And then we move forward now, the sort of broader implications of our uh, relationship with fossil fuels is impacting us at a global scale, but the individual impacts or the community-level impacts, again, are disproportionate. And I, I think it's, it's important to to sort of share that if we were to zoom out, for example, climate justice does have meaning beyond U.S. borders and tends to really reference human rights in the sort of international context, but still is trying to understand the ways in which certain communities in the global north, global south within those countries are disproportionately impact, impacted and are further sort of saddled by but diminished adaptive capacity uh, as a result of socioeconomics or, you know, planning that was colonial legacies, et cetera. It got me thinking to what, what really is climate justice? And you look at the domestic situation and let's say as the impacts of climate change really start to increase and, you know, low income people are going to be disproportionately hit. But looking international, you also have to factor in these countries that did the least to contribute to climate change are going to be impacted the most. And so that, yeah, what I'm getting at too is like we have all these people, even low income people in the United States have a much larger impact and have contributed a lot more to those people overseas. And it seems like this sliding scale of what climate justice really is. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I think I understand what you mean here. And what I, what I will say is sort of the work that I do and, and why I identify first and foremost as a climate justice academic is that in conversation, I'm a trustee of the, the Climate Museum in conversation with our director, you know, it became clear that what we're trying to get at or what we're trying to convey is that the carbon economy requires sacrifice zones and sacrifice zones require racism. We see that very 
clearly in the United States. Now that is sort of nested within a global context as well. So in the global, the, between the global north and the global south, most of those sacrifice zones fall in the global south. But within the global south, there are elites that have less exposure, greater adaptive capacity, and then there are those that do not. Similarly, in the global north, there are communities, even if we are better situated than countries in the global south, there are communities within the global north that may have just as tenuous and, and, and striking exposure to the impacts of climate change. And I think if you look at our indigenous communities in the United States, for example, it would be, you'd be hard pressed to suggest that, you know, there's a sort of a similar sort of carbon fingerprint that you might find in wealthier white communities in the United States. For example, we also have data that suggests, at least in the context of air pollution, that the impact, the imprint, that fingerprint for certain communities differs with white communities having much greater impact on air pollution and also at the same time not bearing the burdens of that, that relative heightened fingerprint, larger fingerprint. And I'm going to keep throwing out names. I don't know if you've sure. collaborated or worked with Air Ciders, University of Delaware. <laughs> yeah, okay. I have. We haven't had a chance to meet in person, but we've encountered each other in a few contexts. But she 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 came on. She's great, and I actually got to meet her in person. I went out to dinner with Jesse up in Boston. And right. Her thing's managed retreat, obviously, and it just when you think about climate justice, it must be so interesting for you as this field of managed retreat is sort of coming into its own. And I guess the notion of managed retreat versus like a Pacific Island versus, oh, coastal South Carolina, they're two very different things. But then how does climate justice factor into it? And if you don't kind of get those things embedded now, you could easily see a situation where the wealthier people are helped the most as they're sort of gently being moved out of the coastal zone. But it just it seems like an area rife to climate justice issues are not going to be factored in. That, I mean, that's, that's right. It's very possible that that might, that might happen. And we, um, we understand, again, from studies that have been done recently, that our decisions around land use and zoning can absolutely determine your, the outcome of your community vis-a-vis -vis the impacts of climate change. And those policy decisions have a very long tail, right? It's multiple decades to a century. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the data that we've seen around redlining and how that's impacted exposures of, of black communities to, you know, heat uh, spikes in, in urban, in terms of urban heat islands, you know, that are five to 12 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the larger, <laughs> the sort of the wider experience of that heat wave in this, in a particular city in these cases. And so, you know, the redlining itself was a policy that has obviously racist roots. And there were other policy efforts at the federal down to local level that reinforced all of those things. But I don't think anybody at the time was factoring in climate change almost a century later. And so we see that land use planning, zoning, decisions around managed retreat can have a similarly long tail. And if we don't integrate the issues of climate equity, uh, the frameworks for climate equity and the concerns around disproportionate impact, we might go ahead and, and re, again, sort of reinstate uh, uh, conditions that are deleterious and disadvantage communities of color in particular. All right. I'm going to pivot a little bit here. And I want to go back and talk about COVID-19. And what are your thoughts on what's happening in our response? And how does it are you there must be so much learning to like in in response to like climate change? I mean, there, uh, there's been a lot of those kind of discussions, but how does it affect your work? Are you, are you are you literally kind of learning on where we're failing, where we're doing things well? Yeah, I think, you know, COVID-19 has been, you know, sort of a, a fascinating example of abrupt 
phenomenon, right? And we think about abrupt phenomenon in the in the context of climate change. I think about whether or not legal systems can integrate, you know, the needs of of people, the you know recognition of rights, etc., in circumstances of abrupt change. And so we see at in this context, in the COVID context, that abrupt change can be really jarring, and that countries and communities that are that have various levels of preparedness will have a different outcome. It's not. It, it's it's quite true that you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a, pr- a pound of cure. We, in our work with the Institute for Climate and Peace, have worked with the Institute of Economics and Peace, which is based out of Australia, and they actually have done have run data and they rank countries by how peaceful they are based on these positive peace metrics. And the countries that are more peaceful, and again, this is a catch-all term that's describing essentially political economies that are um, more equitable, that have uh, social services, that again have access to information, best leadership, that they actually have had better COVID outcomes. Many people look at New Zealand as the beacon, and obviously every country has its own challenges, but but that is a country that is has is instituting some pretty important policy vis-a-vis an abrupt change that's sitting atop pretty well done governance at base. And we can imagine that that's also going to tell us a lot about whether or not we're prepared for climate change, which is so much bigger and so much greater. That is a slow moving, uh, slow, but accelerating train that is going in one direction. Um, and we'll also have these, this element of surprise to it. We'll also have this element of abrupt change. We just, some cases we have some sense of what that will be and some we don't. What I think is really important to consider is that we can imagine a world in which we are adapting to that change or responding to those crises in a way that's not as austere or as lonely as this experience with COVID has been. And I think that's where a lot of the work needs to be done in our thinking, which is to say that the fossil fuel economy has not been without its massive costs. And to remind people that, you know, we all wanted power we didn't necessarily want fossil fuels for that, for, for that power, right? That we could have gotten to where we are. And we've known for some 40 years that we could have gotten to where we are without the byproducts of, you know, mercury in our, in our waters, air pollution that's staggering and again, disproportionately impacting certain communities. Literally corridors of parts of our country named Cancer Alley, and there's certainly more than one. These are the sacrifice zones I was mentioning, and that's certainly a big part of what we can imagine. And sort of the if, if we were to take the climate crisis as one as an opportunity to pivot, which you know this COVID period has been asking, I think, all of us to think about: Is this the world that we want? <laughs> what does it mean to be prepared, and what does it mean to be thriving in this context? Yeah, I mean, there's lessons to be learned. Obviously, I look at the pandemic as this ultimate stress test of a society, and New Zealand did well. And as you'd mentioned, why? And then the U.S. is doing terribly. And is it federalism that failed us? Or I mean, I know leadership is a big part of this, but I just wonder as we kind of study these things and is, are there self-correction opportunities that we're like, now we're going to use these to, of course, future pandemics, but also apply to like how we're going to manage climate change. That's a very good question. (laughs) Was there a question in there? It was more like, but it's just like, are we going to self-correct that we can use this to adapt to climate change? You know, I certainly hope so. I think that there is an opportunity for that. Look, after the, uh, the great recession, that was the, the sort of the last time, and it, was, it wasn't that long ago, right? But that was the last time we saw this sort of massive infusion of funds to 
correct for the, the massive challenge to the economy, which wasn't the result of a pandemic or some other kind of quote, you know, sort of quote, quote, act of God. It was sort of the, <laughs> a, a collapse in, in governance to some degree and certainly uh, the actions of a, quite a few bad actors. But if you and then a bit of inertia in there as well. But the last time we, we had to respond to something like this, there was an infusion of funding and, and the, the funds that we had were disproportionately, I mean, the sort of the vast majority of it went to other kinds of, of infusions into the economy, whether it was the auto industry or getting the banks back up and not to clean energy, for example. By the numbers that I've seen, there was only an eighth of that funding that went into clean energy. And we absolutely need an inversion of that. So this goes to the, I think, the broader conversation about what does the recovery look like and where do we, where do we budget? for the world that we want to see come out of this versus the one that we had been grown used to, right? This is, this is that refrain, which is, you know, do we, do we really want to go back to normal? Normal was, was a crisis. And so if we think about the, the, the way we, we approach our, our budgeting, the way we approach that infusion of funding, the COVID recovery allows for us to at least get some of the, the, the wheels turning on the transitions that we'd like to see, you know, in all sectors of our society. And again, if it has not um, sort of a kind of an equity consideration post hoc if it's actually infused with an understanding that equity will actually produce better results for everyone, then you have the possibility for a much more climate resilient and inclusive economy moving forward. All right. Well, you set me up nicely for my next question. You think about the Green New Deal or even Joe Biden, if he comes in as president and he's talking again, like we'll probably have to do another major stimulus. And the Green New Deal obviously talked about things, economic equity, climate justice. And it was very interesting in that respect. Where do you kind of fit into that? Do you see like a huge, huge opportunity for the kind of work you're doing that if we truly had that sort of society wide investment in these things? Yeah, no, I think that's critically important. It's funny, I, I really can't understand the, you know, the sort of the deep controversy around the, the Green New Deal because it is, it, well, first and foremost, its entire framing recognizing that, recognizes that these two worlds are inextricably intertwined, right? You can't think about the environment or, and certainly climate change in a siloed fashion and not think about its impact on where we live, work, and play, which, by the way, is the environmental justice definition of the environment. It's not some sort of isolated other. It's where we live, work, and play, right? And so if we understand that we need to address climate change, we absolutely have to think about how that impacts where we live, work, and play, and, and vice versa. And so what the Green New Deal is doing is essentially saying, and, and first of all, it's really still t- just in the sort of proposal phase, although I know that there's great policy that's just waiting to be implemented that's been sidelined at this point. But really what we're looking at is saying we need to address climate change. It is urgent and existential. And there are some people for whom it is urgent, existential, (laughs) even faster clip in in a more aggressive timeline. And to do that, we will be moving through a transition. And how do we allow for that transition to be just and to be inclusive? And so it's sort of like part one is addressing climate change. Part two is understanding how we ensure that we all are brought along on this one, right? And so those kinds of, of considerations about workforce development, transitions for coal workers, et cetera, this is a critical part of actually addressing climate change in a, in a holistic fashion and one that thinks about people and the concerns of workers themselves. And by the way, the upside is that we have a world that's, that's 
as somewhat healthier than it would have been. You know, there are things that are locked in with respect to climate change, but we can always uh, sort of choose a more tolerable pathway. And that's what that work is doing. But in the larger scheme of things, the work that I do and those who are doing climate justice are trying to sort of convince people <laughs> that, in fact, you cannot disentangle these two spaces and that we have been siloing it for too long to the detriment of some communities, those sacrifice zones, and now to the broader global community. Well, with the Green New Deal, I mean, it could have been a one page with a, you know, a smiley face on it and the opponents would have called it socialism. So it, there was nothing that they were going to put out that was not going to be controversial. Yeah. That's just the nature. of That's just the nature of things right now. And I, I think we always, we should always treat it as exceptional and deleterious and unacceptable on some level, because it really is the weak underbelly of our ability to move forward and to be addressing climate change with the kind of solidarity that we need. Okay, I'm going to do another major pivot here, and I want to talk about something <laughs> okay. less controversial. Let's just keep it simple. Let's talk climate reparations. <laughs> so what, uh, you know, people can kind of sense what that might mean, but walk us through, kind of give us your definition, and then I, I, we're, we're going to dig into it. Yeah, so I'll just give a um, <laughs> a basic a basic definition I, because I think what happens is that a lot of a lot of times we hear reparations. Most people hear reparations certainly in the United States, and they think about reparations for slavery, and it's, and and then it becomes specifically about monetary payouts, and then it becomes a sort of like zero sum game, and there's a lot of uh, sort of politics and preconceptions around what this what this means. And I just want to sort of, again, zoom out and think about what reparations are meant to do, right? Reparations are their efforts to repair relationships, their efforts to repair harms uh, for harms that have occurred. And they're, it's an effort to sort of foster right relationships after something has been damaged or destroyed in some way. And so the purpose of reparations is really about relationships and right relationships. And there are elements of reparations that get you there. And each effort, you know, each, each sort of post-harm reparations program will, will look a little bit different, but may have some elements of an apology of some kind of compensation, monetary or in kind. And then we'll include a really key part of it, which is where I like to think a lot of, uh, think about a lot, which is this guarantee of non-repetition. Well, how did we get here and how do we guarantee that we don't get back into that same situation that it caused, caused the harm to occur? So in the context of climate change, there's a number of ways of thinking about what that, how to define the harm and how to understand and justify the need for reparations in that context. It depends on what you, what scale you're looking at. If you're looking at communities that are bringing reparations claims against a federal entity, for example, or if it's between two nation states, there are different ways that you could imagine this playing out. But I've been doing research and and currently working with Sonia Klinsky on doing research on thinking about what it means to have a climate reparations effort that is justified based on the fact that there's uneven contributions to the harm, right? Again, as we talked about, there the global north versus the global south, wealthier white Americans and uh, communities of color that, that tend to, again, not have as great a, a, a carbon footprint. That is a, a documented and significant part of our experiences of climate change and our varied experiences of climate change. So one could argue that there's been an even a contribution to the harm, and that needs to be corrected in order for right relations and, in the context of climate change, thriving communities to actually come about. There's also the uneven experience of the harms themselves, right? This is, again, not all of us are going to be as 
threatened, at least not in the near term, as a result of the changes to the climate. There are differences in, in ability to adapt, and oftentimes those differences have historical roots, like redlining in the context of the United States or other elements of colonialism and post-colonial policy for the global south. And then there is arguments around unjust enrichment. And this is a bit more of a, of a sort of technical term. But the idea here is that you, you know, you've benefited case of the fossil fuel companies or even our, our government has benefited from the burning of fossil fuels, has been unjustly enriched by it. And it's been at the cost of other communities. And how do we correct for that? And so those are some of the ways of thinking about reparations in the context of climate change. And then the specifics will matter as different communities pursue that as state to state conversations may happen with respect to correcting the wrongs and setting up right relations and actually allowing for, again, uh, countries like those in the, the Pacific that are particularly at the front lines to have an ability to exist in some cases, given the, the climate forecast. You shared with me this paper you wrote in 2009. It was a remarkable uh, journal article, and I learned a ton in just the scope of how you were describing climate reparations. I and mean, first off, what was the response to that when you first wrote it? Because 2009 is a lifetime ago. Yeah. And and have you changed? Have any of your positions from that paper changed? Or have you only just sort of reinforced what you kind of thought when you were writing that? Yeah, great question. I mean, what there are two, two things, two ways to think about this, right? I mean, on one level, in terms of the response, it was a scholarly article. And I think the response was one of interest. But it has been fairly dormant. At the same time, even, you know, with the Obama administration at the helm, the conversations in Copenhagen and the sort of the ramp up in the international conversation around actually aggressive mitigation and adaptation and then this area called loss and damage, as that conversation was happening in the international negotiations, there was a clear statement by the administration that sort of reparations is a non-starter that conversation is not going to take us anywhere. So, it, there, you know, the, the two, the piece and that conversation weren't linked per se, but it was clear that the politics of this were very different than the conceptual arguments for it, right? And so, again, in 2009, you're right, it does seem like eons ago, even without COVID. Now we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot more conversation about climate reparations. I've been talking to advocacy groups and climate advocacy groups uh, about the concepts of climate reparations and how to make them actionable at a level that's meaningful. And the you you'll see separate and apart from you know the research that I was doing you'll see this reference to reparations and climate reparations specifically in the youth climate strikes and other advocacy efforts that we've seen on the ground so there is a sort of emerging consideration of this important element of addressing climate change and if it, if at the very least it's at the bare minimum it means providing resources for frontline communities to actually be able to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Again, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, which were about un, you know, uneven harms, uneven contribution, uh, unjust enrichment, all of those, you know, sort of justifications for a reparation scheme. In reading this, I found this quote and I want to share it for really compelling because you covered a lot of just the moral ground. And so indeed, yeah. the ability of reparations to express moral force is what makes reparations so compelling in the climate change context. And so you talk a bit about the morality of even doing reparations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's a massive part of it. What your what your hope is when moving through a, rep a reparations sort of program or project is to 
is to build trust or rebuild trust, which I wouldn't say is a defining characteristic of the global negotiation, but it's to rebuild trust and it's to build solidarity. And that is often lost, which is why, you know, when you're quipped about, you know, the fact that this is less, this is somewhat controversial, it is because we have sort of stripped the, the reparations sort of larger goal from our you know, sort of common understanding of it. And the larger goal is to repair relationships, right, and to forge right relations. And getting to the ethical question, especially the time in 2009, was critically important. In the early 2000s, a lot of the conversation, certainly in legal academia, about whether or not we should even do something about climate change was really driven by the cost-benefit analysis. And what that did was obfuscate what was essentially a question of what should we do, an ethical question, a normative question, with how do we do it and how expensive will it be? And oftentimes the conversation, again, was inverted. So it was about, well, you know, this is going to cost us a lot. And this is about uh, you know, the United States and China and what you know they're not doing their part and the economy of it and not thinking about the sort of tragic loss of livelihoods that we were already seeing at the time and that were, you know, sort of the, the clear byproduct of our way of living and our way of life. And so to me, it seemed, at the, and certainly at that time, that this part of the conversation was sort of awfully absent, but critically important to helping steer us in the right direction, both in what we do and how aggressively we do it. As I read that, it covered a lot of ground. And I'm wondering in the last 10 years since it's been out, and I'm generalizing here, but to me, creating a very simplistic narrative around climate reparations would be very useful. And if you look at reparations associated with slavery, it's a little bit it's simpler. And not to say that people support it, but it's just it's a little bit you could connect the dots at more easily. And I'm just wondering, have you been able to kind of go through that process? Because right now, it seems like you would just cover so much ground, it would be hard to really make a compelling case for it. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really important question. And what I do in the paper is sort of is at that time in 2009, imagine what it would look like for a country, a country to country a reparations claim. Right. And what would it look for one of the Pacific Islands to seek reparations from the United States as, you know, what the major emitter, both in real time in the 2000s and then certainly historically. And so that was an effort to sort of test this out. Similarly, along the lines of some of the loss and damage conversation, I wrote a later article that was looking at what it would mean to have a, a global pool and fund communities, again, that are, and excuse me, excuse me, specifically countries and small island states that are on the front lines that are looking at devastating impacts. What would it look like to actually fund and support those communities with there being a disproportionate input by the countries that are most responsible and who have benefited most financially. What I'm working on right now, again, with my colleague, Sonia Klinsky, who's a geographer, is trying to see how you might move forward with the reparations effort that is looking at different scales. For example, are there reparations claims that indigenous communities can make in the U.S. and Canada? What would that look like? What, is, what are the justifications? What are the challenges? And what would some of the uh, reparative programs look like? Right? Is it is it funding plus a robust healthcare system, for example, or relocation, etc.? You could also again look nation state to nation state, and we oftentimes are thinking about global countries in the global north versus countries in the global south. There are opportunities there. Now, that's not to say that there aren't mechanisms within the international negotiations, for example, that might do that work. If loss and damage is that 
has that possibility, then great. Similarly, we see litigation that might have that possibility. The limits of those efforts, though, are the ones that I taught, we, we mentioned earlier, which is the fact that you don't always get to sort of the right relations and the repair, the trust building, the solidarity building, the ethical questions that based. And most importantly, you don't get to the guarantees of non-repetition. Again, how did we get here? <laughs> and in some cases, if again, if we think about indigenous communities, black communities in the United States, the how we got here is the sacrifice zones or the policies that uh, that have affected our ability to adapt th- that are exacerbated by uh, differential exposure. I'm wondering if we're going to make progress on climate reparations. I'm wondering, do you see competition between climate reparations and racial reparations associated with slavery? To, to be honest, you know, what, what we've seen with Black Lives Matter over the last three to four months, the progress we've actually had even around the conversation of reparations, I'm actually dazzled by. And it seems like some people are really taking this seriously. I just thought it was something that would never really get much traction. And it seems like more and more people are talking about it in very serious ways. And so if there is true progress, if there is mechanisms and programs, are people ready? All right, now we're going to follow that up with climate reparations. You see what I'm saying? It's, do you feel there could be some competition there? That's an important question. I've gotten it before. And I don't see competition. What I see is that the product of both efforts may overlap, right? In order to correct both injustices and to create a circumstance of, of, of better relationships, if not right relations, we may see the same things occur. I have an incredible amount of respect and real adoration for those who are working on climate, uh, African-American reparations and are specifically looking, for example, to close the wealth gap. That's a critically important bit of work. I, I should mention I'm on the Lancet Commission for Reparations and Redistributive Justice, and we are looking at reparations for all sorts of scenarios, right? Everything from South African apartheid and concerns around psychosexual violence throughout the globe, the circumstances of the delete in India. There's no sort of shortage, if you will, of the ways in which reparations can correct for past harms. And what I see and the work that we're doing is that is, is uncovering the systemic nature not just of climate change and its outcomes, but in its coming to pass. The fact that we are here is oftentimes very much overlapping with the exploitation of peoples and the lands that they were on. And so oftentimes what we're looking at are the same set of, of circumstances that have gotten us to where we are, and some of the solutions will also necessarily overlap. But because climate change is different in nature in terms of the, the way in which the change in climate is one, again, that is not only changing, but the rate of change is increasing and it's introducing circumstances that we've never seen before. We need to be thinking differently as well about how that might impact people's livelihood. And certainly issues of migration and mobility are one of those things. So in a reparation scheme, part of that, the responses may not just be funding to actually close the, the gap in terms of capacity, but it also could be thinking differently about our, our border policy and how we let people move within and across borders. There, there are different ways to think about it. There are places where there will be overlap in terms of income, access to healthcare, all the things that will make us more resilient. But then there are new scenarios that will require a different kind of approach. You know, it just gets so complicated so quickly. I think if, if you could come up with a reparations program even today to address these things and even get people better prepared for these 
climate impacts, which is part of that, a community 25 years from now or 50 years from now, climate changes with us for a very long time. What would the climate reparations look like 30 years from now? Are there similar populations or were were they helped enough that they don't need to be part of that? Anyway, I'm just, just well, talking out well, loud. So, like, No, like, no. I mean, yes. Listen, <laughs> none of this will be easy. Right, right. <laughs> but but neither is climate change. Right. And so what what I I mean, I think what we oftentimes do, which is an understandable default to say, well, this sounds really difficult, but we're comparing it to, you know, sort of recent history to present. What we're looking at, obviously, is a quite different future, unfortunately. And so what I think is is the more effective comparison is what does it look like to actually, as hard as it is, ensure that we have just inclusive and nimble solutions for our communities, especially our frontline communities, versus the absence of coordination, the absence of planning. We're seeing that with COVID, right? It it would have been difficult to have (laughs) reparations for African-Americans moving to to date, but we have our colleagues in the Lancet have done research showing that had African-Americans had access to those reparations, then there are 13,000 deaths that would have been avoided as of the date of their the, the, the publication of the draft. And relevant from an epidemiological standpoint, all other communities would have benefited from that as well, right? The actual disease incidents would have been reduced. So, so the idea here is not, is, is I think, to understand that we don't, we have, we have essentially gotten ourselves to a point where we have only tough decisions and tough processes to choose between. And if we understand that to be the case, would be like a coordinated and just one or one in which we, you know, we sort of fiddle, you know, sort of around and don't grasp at the roots. So, you know, Angela Davis said radical simply means grasping at the roots, right? Right now we're sort of fiddling with maybe some of the roots where, you know, we're pruning some of the leaves. We actually, what sounds radical is actually getting to the root of the problem and and actually having us have a, a at least a better chance at a better outcome. We're, we're sort of fooling ourselves and we think that all of the choices moving forward are not going to be difficult ones. And this is not meant to complicate that. It's meant to actually clarify it and bring an important moral element to it. All right. I think we've just scratched the surface on this climate reparation conversation. <laughs> it just You're going to come on again and we're going to approach it in a different way. But I, I do I want to wrap this up somewhat. And I have a few more questions for you. I just wanted to get your thoughts on some things. And you're a professor at University of Hawaii and you're working in this adaptation space. And I just wanted to get your your thoughts on I've had this conversation about how universities are approaching adaptation. Do you have coursework? Are there adaptation programs? What are you doing at the University of Hawaii? Yeah, you know, I teach the climate change seminar and uh, ocean and coastal law, and we have a robust environmental law program that is trying to engage students from day one in both learning about environmental law and certainly its relationship to Hawaii specifically and our unique set of laws and doing work uh, on the ground to action the legal research and, and learning that's happening in the classroom. My work at the University of Hawaii has also been very much about working with the larger Pacific in terms of island vulnerabilities and issues of, uh, again, migration and, and loss of habitable territory in the region. Does the University of Hawaii, uh, I guess part of my criticism, too, is that the different universities, I talk to a lot of yeah. academics, and you guys individually are just doing some cutting-edge work, but is there a master's program in adaptation, and is there a lot of coursework? Because a lot of professors are just sort of, you're setting up shop, and you're doing your work, 
but it doesn't necessarily mean there's programmatic options available for the students. And is right. that an option at the University of Hawaii? That is absolutely. We have an Institute for Sustainability and Resilience and a, and a, a set of programs that have been um, stood up and are in the process of standing up that are undergrad and graduate courses on sustainability. I think we're pretty well sort of ahead of the curve and part of that larger community of universities that recognizes that you can't <laughs> you can't work in any field and not be intimately impacted or in, impacting in a positive way uh, issues around climate resilience, sustainability, which, you know, the term itself has, has uh, sustained a lot of uh, criticism. But the notion here is that how do we make those those programs actionable for students so that they're prepared once they head into the workforce? I think we there's a broader recognition that to be an effective leader, certainly we do this at Institute for Climate and Peace as well, to be an effective leader in the 21st century, we have to understand that climate change and the state of our environment is the context. It's not an issue. Right. It is not going to be that sort of um, adjacent to the work that you're doing, but your work, in fact, will either be a cause or consequence of, <laughs> of of the change in climate. So understanding that and being prepared for that is a big part of the work that the ISR and the Institute for Sustainability and Resiliency is trying to do. And I think the larger University of Hawaii community. I have a lot of students who listen. And so, guys, they're, University of Hawaii is not a bad location to go do some adaptation work. So <laughs> good to know. <laughs> And just a couple more questions, but I wonder, you're an academic and you run in certain circles, but you deal with practitioners too. Do you feel like you're part of a broader adaptation universe? Like it's like a cohesive field or do you even feel like there's a need for that? Because, you know, there's some associations and there's, you know, some groups that are kind of merging, but do you feel like you're plugged into that? I do. I mean, I certainly was more so a few years ago. I'd been on the, there was a federal advisory committee on the sustained national climate assessment. And that was sort of a the perfect example of the ways in which I try to remain engaged with what it means to support the adaptation initiatives at the, at the sort of local to, to up to federal level as an academic. Uh, that, you know, with a new administration, that particular committee <laughs> was sunset. But I mean, I think I'd, I'd you know, been uh, in close conversation with a number of adaptation practitioners and find that it's really important that we are, that our research is actionable, that it is getting to the, those on the ground that are doing the work, that it's, that it's relevant for a number of reasons. And so I do think that um, I, especially as a law professor, have had an unusual level of engagement with that broader broader community. I find that sometimes people don't necessarily <laughs> appreciate the relevance of lawyers and these and, and legal academics in these conversations. But I think that it's so critically important to understand that oftentimes our biggest impediment and biggest set of possibilities really come in the policy and, and the law as it stands and as it might be. So my final question, and I ask this of all my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? One person, goodness gracious. Oh, There's every, so many. Right, everybody has people. to get into or three. <laughs> yeah, I know. One person. Uh, one person. Tony, you know, I was listening to your other podcast and I heard the question and I still refuse to think <laughs> to prepare adequately for it. I am a huge fan of a couple of people, but I will say because of the incredible work he's doing as a young climate activist, Jerome Foster. I don't know if he's been on the show before, but he does a lot of work with climate change and youth activism. And he is really a, a phenomenal and inspiring advocate. And he uh, is 18, 
maybe, but has already started youth voting and advocacy organization, One Million of Us. He has been in the streets for, <laughs> I'm sure, as, as more years than he's been on Earth, right, in terms of really thinking about what the next generation of climate activism looks like. So, again, there are a number of people that I might I might share, but I, I think Jerome would be a really fantastic participant and really will provide, I think, an important window into how young people are thinking about climate change, which is so much more nuanced and and heart-driven than I think prior activists and advocates have been allowed to be. So that's my recommendation. All right, cool recommendation. And you know what? I've st- I actually added a, a question that I've been doing in my last few episodes, and, and this is different than recommending coming on, but who has been a major influence to you in the adaptation space? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Again, so many fantastic people. You'd be surprised my listeners look these people up. So I mean, it's fine just being one person, you know, they'll look up and they'll learn something new. So, I mean, I can't understate how Wangari Matai's work and her vision and her courage was such an integral part of my sense of possibility in this space both in terms of unique solutions and as a an East African woman that was really a powerful and innovative advocate for the earth and for women at the same time. Again, seeing the interconnections, planting trees. She, she was someone I, I very, I found a deep inspiration from reading her and knowing of her story. Awesome. And I'll, I'll follow up and hopefully get a link or something that I can share in my show notes and such. Sure. Uh, all right, Maxine, this was a fabulous conversation. If I had to sort of predict what my listeners were doing out there, they'd be like, keep talking about climate reparations. We just scratched the surface, and I, I, I want to have sort of an open invitation. I hope we can get you back on at some point because there's so many different topics that you're doing. But thanks for coming on, and thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. Again, it's been a pleasure. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Maxine Burkett for coming on the podcast. What an enlightening conversation for me. I've read a little about climate reparations, but didn't really understand the implications of what was being asked. But Maxine delivered such a compelling case on why they are needed. I don't think we're quite there yet, but people like Maxine are providing the intellectual case for it. As you can see, we just scratched the surface on this topic, and I hope to have her on again in the future. Okay, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation channel on Simpatico TV. Yes, a whole channel dedicated to climate adaptation. Right now, we are still recording pilots, and I am nearing my 100th interview on Simpatico. And we are just getting started. I've been talking with some amazing climate professionals from around the world, literally Europe, Africa, Asia. If you're a professional in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work that you're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. Videos from all the episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social media channels. If you are looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. And we're also just encouraging you to come check things out, come watch a live show, and join the community room. The software is behind a firewall. It's just like a browser. So reach out to me or go to simpatico.com, that's C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O.com, and put your information in, and you'll get directions to get into a show. 
Yes, it's free. We just want you to come check things out and see what Simpatico is all about. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Adapts, and yes, this is different than Simpatico, think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners before, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, the trustees, MIT. Maybe you want to tell your story via podcast. Reach out, let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences. And I know we're all taking a break from those at the moment, But feel free to contact me if you're interested in having me speak at your event, even remotely. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. I like hearing from listeners on what they do and how the podcast can inform their work. I'm always learning from listeners who do reach out, you know, just from all over the world. I want to hear who you are and what you're doing. That's useful information for me and actually in how some of the content that I generate. It is the highlight of my week and it can lead to some cool things. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email and don't forget to check out the website americaadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.